Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. It seems very clear that what's going to continue to dominate the week ahead will be the continuing distressing scenes from Afghanistan and the bickering amongst Western leaders in the wake of what's been described as America's cut and run from the country. We're hearing of people being trampled, shootings and rape of civilians at Kabul airport. At least 20 people have died there. We've seen a lack of coordination between Western powers and provision for refugees on makeshift and piecemeal. Here to look ahead at these miserable prospects, plus a couple more of this week's stories, is Naomi Smith, Chief Executive of Best for Britain. Good morning, Naomi. How are you? Yeah, good morning, Andrew. Still feeling deeply ashamed of uh, of the West, basically. It's all still very grim and makes me feel sick to my stomach, if we're honest. Yes, it has been. It's been a dismal weekend preceded by a dismal week. Are we seeing any sign coordination for Afghanistan might improve that uh, any better provision for refugees than what we saw in the panic response of last week? Well, what's happened over the weekend is reports of, uh, I think, around 20 Afghans that have been killed at mm -hmm. Kabul airport. I think most of them in crushes on the approach. Um, so as the crowds swell uh, and, and more and more people join the back of the queue, people being crushed to death. So uh, against that backdrop, I, I think we should say no. You know, people are still prepared to risk their lives uh, in order to escape. The slight movement there has been has been twofold. So first of all, Boris Johnson obviously is, is currently chairing G7. Um, and over the weekend, he has said ahead of their virtual meeting this week, he is going to be pressing the US for slower withdrawal uh, from Kabul. Um, if you remember the deadline that, that Biden has said is that all US troops will be out of the country by the 31st of August, which of course is next week. So not very long at all. And also Biden um, has told CNN uh, that the US will extend the safe zone around Kabul airport and that there are quote, discussions about whether the full withdrawal will still go ahead on the 31st of August or not. Um, he, he's saying that's still the ambition. But for the first time, there seems to be a little bit of doubt creeping in um, against the backdrop of, of world condemnation about the speed of, of withdrawal. There are fears that thousands of people with British connections are going to miss the chance to be evacuated, not entirely down to the Americans, down to our, our own government's failure to act quickly, you know, the embarrassing story that uh, the, the ambassador was at the airport personally yep. processing. Um, good man. The story of the weekend has been the British government's slow response, and particularly Rab on the beach, Conservatives continuing to savage their own government. Firstly, has Rab survived this? Because he, he looks pretty much like he's got past the Hancock barrier. Has he survived it? Is he damaged goods now? Um, well, I mean, he was pretty damaged beforehand, having embarrassed himself many, many times most infamously 
uh, everyone will remember about <laughs> having to point out the strategic importance of Dover to an island nation in terms of trade. I think he will survive because Johnson doesn't want him to be held to a high standard, lest those standards apply to uh, others like him and, of course, the Prime Minister himself. The other story that came out over the weekend, brief to the Sunday papers, was that it was Johnson who had authorised Rob uh, to have his holiday and to allow him to stay on the beach, which, of course, doesn't look good for Johnson at all. I think probably what we're looking at, though, is uh, Rob being reshuffled in a bigger shake-up coming uh, in, you know, maybe weeks or, or, or it was meant to be in a couple of months that might get brought forward, but it'll be hidden within a reshuffle of lots of them. Now, the other thing to remember is that all is not well around the cabinet table at all. Relations mm-hmm. between senior ministers and number 10 are pretty precarious. You'll remember that Rishi Sunak fell out with the with the Prime Minister over um, pushing for faster on lockdowns. The Gavin Williamson scandals just, you know, keep coming. Uh, Priti Patel um, has been criticised for uh, not getting on top of the channel crossings um, as effectively as she should. Uh, and, you know, there have been issues with Grant Shapps as well in terms of transport. So there is a high likelihood, I would think, that Rob survives this immediate catastrophe but that his sins won't go unpunished in a bigger reshuffle and will get hidden in a wider shake-up later on. But it does make you ask yourself who can they replace Ra with if you're driven to putting someone like Rab in position already if he's the best you can get who's the next best I mean it makes you think that our next foreign secretary could be even more dismal. Yeah I mean and I think that that is true uh, of 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 uh, most of the top positions and mm. we often talk about you know the low quality of politician that there is in parliament since the uh the expenses scandal um in the late noughties so uh look, i'm not going to speculate about who yeah. because you know who who knows but but you're right you know there, there is very little talent there to draw from and of course loyalty will be the the prime deciding factor rather than skill set i mean i think we're already most of us missing dare i say it uh, hancock's influence on controlling coronavirus in the wake of sajid javid taking over and delta running ever more you know out of control numbers definitely going quite dangerously in the wrong direction uh, in mm. terms of hospitalizations and deaths Recrimination between Britain and the United States and to a lesser extent the European Union continued to fester over the weekend. Tony Blair described the withdrawal as being in pursuit of an imbecilic slogan about ending forever wars. I'm struggling to think of a worse low for US-UK relations. Can you? Mm. No, indeed. Um, and I, uh, you know, I agree with, with Tony Blair. Um, we could have managed the situation with very little effort by comparison to the effort expended. And I say we the West, not, not we necessarily the UK, but by comparison to efforts in South Korea uh, and elsewhere. Uh, he's right that it's not only horrendous for women atheists, gay people and other Afghans, but it's dangerous for the whole West because of what this means uh, in terms of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, etc., as well as the Taliban and people being very concerned about uh, suicide bombers attacking those trying to make their way to Kabul airport. And I guess that is what that intelligence is what is driving uh, Biden saying that they're going to try and expand the safe zone around the airport. Back to relations between the UK and the US, when we look at what's happening in the 
U.S. Moderate Republicans who backed him uh, seem to be waning in their support for him. Of course, over Afghanistan, there are still thought to be several thousand U.S. citizens in Afghanistan. Um, and of course, the, the images of babies being thrown over barbed wire fences, people falling from fuselage are going to haunt him for the rest of his political career. But there are also concerns about the Delta variant running rampage in the U.S. again. In terms of U.S.-U.K. relations, I just find this so predictably appalling um, that the UK, of course, has sort of severed diplomatic relations with many of its allies in Europe and the European Union itself in the hope that, you know, the US would have its back. The US hasn't. And what we now don't have is this very coordinated NATO and EU pressure group on the US to do the right thing. Were Britain still a big fish within Europe? Um, it would be much harder for Biden to be ignoring the rest of the West, if you like, whereas now it knows the, the UK is very much more isolated. And so we just have lost that global soft power we once wielded, or it is certainly uh, greatly diminished. Well, I mean, 12 months ago, you'd have said that we were most likely to fall out with the United States over Northern Ireland and the British government's nonchalant, irresponsible treatment of uh, the Good Friday Agreement. You would not have predicted that we would fall out over this, that Biden would honour Trump's precipitous quick deal, which is now looks increasingly like a time bomb left underneath the, mm. the, the Biden presidency. You would not have predicted that we would be falling out over Afghanistan, given how faithful Britain has been to Americans' policy under different prime ministers over the past 20 years. Indeed. And, and we're in that unfortunate situation where we are now going to probably fall out with them over both Northern Ireland and Afghanistan. Yes, and attempt to do a trade deal with them at the same time. I think that is very firmly on the back burner. Yeah, uh, in in a in news that will be a relief to anyone who's concerned about hormone beef and chlorinated chicken. Going back to the state of Biden's popularity and the perceptions of the competence of his administration, Democrats in the US are very concerned about this, about a probable collapse of confidence in Biden. They are concerned that the the moderate centre voters who supported him last time. Uh, might be might be driven away by this exactly the scenes you've just described. Republicans have launched uh, congressional investigations into the administration's handling of the withdrawal. How serious a political crisis is this for him? I mean, considering the noise the Republicans made over Benghazi, this is of a vastly greater magnitude and a clearly serious ineptitude. The moderate Republicans uh, on whom he relied in order to get into the White House are the very Republicans who would have been sceptical of Trump. He does rely on them for continued support. It is looking bad. You know, it, this isn't, I mean, you know, to the extent that this is filtered through to voters yet, I think is is to be seen. And, and certainly last week, polling seemed to suggest there was confidence for Biden's approach, you know, get out of Afghanistan, our boys have done enough, support for that withdrawal. Uh, I think only a third of voters saying that they'd uh, disagreed with the withdrawal, which was, you know, it's staggering poll rating compared to that that we were seeing across Europe. But it is certainly hurting him with moderate Republicans in the Senate, in the House, um, and even some of his own Democrats. You know, there are there are governors and others uh, across the country flexing their muscles and saying this is not good enough. We are not happy with this. Look, there aren't elections happening imminently. So, you know, maybe he's got time to turn this around. And much of the rest of his agenda has been incredibly popular. Make no mistake, this is an enormous dent 
in in Biden's ability to hold that broad coalition together that was essentially an anti-Trump coalition. He needed to build it into a pro-Biden coalition. And at the moment, that seems to be slipping through his fingers fairly quickly. The optics are diabolical. Biden's brand in the election was empathy, was, you know, end the madness and care for other Americans. He has looked callous in this episode, dismissing um, the the fate of Afghanistan, to, uh, put, put it in the hands of its own people. I mean, you're a political campaigner. What happens when you go against your brand, when you present yourself not as the, the person that people elected, but as a very different person? I mean, I think, that, I think that's a very good point, Andrew. And rather than sort of think about it in terms of brand, I think you have to talk about it in terms of authenticity. People may not uh, necessarily like a politician or a candidate, but they might believe in what they stand for. You see this hugely with uh, people like Farage, George Galloway, you know, populist kinds of uh, politicians do well because people actually do believe what they say. They, They seem to be so purist that they stand away from their common criticism of politicians that they'll say one thing and do another yeah what they say is appalling but at least they believe i believe i believe what they i believe that they believe what they're saying yeah yeah yeah. now you can triangulate in politics and you often have to in order to build those broad coalitions etc but you can never deviate too far from the as you say the brand the values the principles that underpin the very fundamentals of who they believe you to be and when you do it becomes a trust issue and and trust is the biggest the lack of trust is the biggest risk to politicians the world over uh, and, and and he will have lost the trust of more hawkish people uh, but just as you say those those with compassion and that's not just because of the withdrawal that's probably also because of the limited appetite for taking in um, Afghan refugees that we've seen from uh, many western states but but you know chiefly from those that really could afford to be taking far more than they proposed to the UK included well back here you haven't seen much of it in the legitimate media but on social media the refugee debate has gone quite toxic again over the weekend when you've got even tom harwood of, of gb news getting roasted for saying that people who flee islamists should be allowed into the uk i mean there was a huge response no room here we're full exactly what you'd expect of the nativist right in this country you've said on our other podcast that overall the british public are in favor of helping it polls favorably that we should be taking in people who are, who are fleeing the taliban how can you see that developing this week do you think the, the refugee debate is going to become more central I hope so. Um, last week, there was an absolutely devastating piece uh, in Devon Online about the leader of the Liberal Democrat group on Torbay Council, who said, uh, we can't have any Afghan refugees settled in Torbay because we are so under-resourced from all of the cuts that we can't possibly take them in. Oh, and because we don't really have much of a migrant community here, they won't feel very welcome. And he he has, you know, rightly been lambasted by other Lib Dem councillors within his group. Um, but if you if if you even have Liberal Democrat councillors waving the flag for nativism uh, in the UK, then you can only imagine how the far right are seizing on this issue and, you know, just 
a very quick glance at Farage's Twitter feed shows you how thrilled he is with this situation because it gives him more cause to to ramp up his anti-immigrant xenophobic rhetoric. But yes, you're right. We are fundamentally a very compassionate uh, people when it comes to extreme situations like this. And there has always been a difference in this country between uh, hostility towards what is perceived to be economic migrants and then those seeking sanctuary uh, who need shelter and and safety and peace from the situation that they are fleeing from. So I I hope that more pressure will be applied, but at the moment it doesn't seem like um, the UK is is going to revisit its figure of taking more than 20,000 refugees over the long term. And indeed overnight I I saw uh, stories that we are now beginning to erect offshore processing centres We've outsourced and offshored call centers for the last couple of decades. Now we uh, are seeking apparently to offshore processing centers in countries around and, and nearer to Afghanistan in order to be able to process them. That said, I did see that the figure for the number that we're hoping to take is actually 6,000 this year now rather than 5,000 because I think we are speeding up uh, the process of, of getting people through. But I don't think it will have an impact on that overall 20,000 number just yet. So, yeah, people need to put pressure on their MPs to uh, let Parliament know that we are a tolerant, open and welcoming country that wants to help these people. On to a couple of other topics before we wrap up. COVID, as you say, cases are still creeping up. They're up to 26,413 on the seven-day average by the weekend. Deaths are still in the low 80s. In this morning's news, the government is removing around 50 companies from the list of approved COVID-19 testing providers. The founder of one provider, Random, says the PCR market needs cleaning out. Uh, And also there's a new finger prick antibody test program being rolled out for COVID positive people. Are we now accepting that this is going to be a permanent part of healthcare? That, you know, this is going to be as with your annual flu jab, as with your various tests for mammograms and prostates and all this kind of thing. You know, COVID healthcare is going to be just a permanent feature. Well, I think we've long known that COVID is something we're going to have to live with the zero COVID ambition uh, that some countries originally tried to pursue is probably a a fantasy. Um, That said, the antibody test program, as I understand it, is a voluntary experiment for those that that test positive through and and register their positive test through the app, then get sent a finger prick test, which they can or cannot use should they want to uh, you know test their blood send it off in in the post for it to be analyzed because there is some research beginning to show that we are all having quite different antibody reactions to um, the vaccines and to developing COVID ourselves and so this is part of um, a bigger uh, research program to try and identify who is most at risk and therefore needing uh, different types of booster or different types of advice from government about shielding if they aren't producing the immune response that you would typically expect from having had exposure to the viruses either through having uh, caught it yourself or uh, vaccination so um, you know everyone is coming to terms with the fact that this is a new normal but uh, the antibody test isn't a, a mandatory program yet as I understand it. Meanwhile, scientists in Britain are examining whether to use smaller doses of the vaccine in the booster programs that are going to be coming in the autumn. Microdosing. Uh, micro, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, apparently it's very good for uh, helping you concentrate at work. This will increase the supply of shots available around the world. Are we finally getting a bit of a of a global perspective on vaccines? I'm about plenty of time. Uh, you know, WHO and others for, for a long while have been saying it is much more important to get 
first and second shots into the arms of absolutely everybody than it is to be rolling out regular boosters for everyone. So I suspect this is part of some kind of climb down uh, or U-turn or whatever from richer countries on that. So yes, uh, this story is basically saying, can we halve the doses in order to double the supply that we've got? You know, Does everybody that requires a booster need the full shebang each time or or will a lower dose give them um, the boost in immunity that they'll need to get them through the next few months? allowing us then to to portion out more first and second dose vaccines to the rest of the world, which, as we know, is vital if we are ever to uh, get back to a situation where we aren't so concerned about new variants cropping up, uh, vaccine-resistant variants popping up, etc., because of of the large, large, large numbers of countries around the world that remain um, incredibly low in terms of their vaccination uh, population rate. Finally, before we go, it's time for Naomi to play the hits. Supply chains continue to be stretched by Brexit and COVID. The Times had a story at the weekend that Christmas is already cancelled. The British Poultry Council says uh, turkey production will be 20% lower than last year because of a lack of seasonal workers. We're still short of 90,000 lorry drivers. And the casino owner rank group said it's struggling to get hold of halloumi and Sauvignon Blanc in recent weeks. Must we live like animals? <laughs> no, me. Uh, autumn's the busiest time for everything, not just food, but yeah. you know, delivery of everything from electronics to any kind of goods you can you can. Can you see this getting worse as we go into the autumn? It is going to get worse because the government has no plan beyond a couple of very measly measures like lowering the threshold for passing your HGV driving test uh, to try and get more experts back on the roads delivering us the goods that we need in time for things like Black Friday and Christmas. However, what is happening is inflation wage inflation because uh, there is such a small pool of people who can drive left in the country now that we have left the EU and uh, are no longer uh, lucky enough to be having the large numbers of EU drivers bringing us our stuff. Um, So there are all sorts of golden handcuff bonuses happening. Some uh, companies offering drivers a £1,000 sign-on bonus, a £1,000 retention bonus, some companies even more. And of course, the bigger companies like Tesco are able to do this and able to absorb some of that cost but the big discounters the Aldi's and Lidl's um, and others that operate on you know very 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 small margins just don't have that bandwidth without passing on that uh, cost to customers and then you've got the the, the much smaller organizations um, we've, we've heard that um, convenience store chain McColls is saying you know this is this is going to mean uh, that we have far fewer stuff on our shelves we you know that they simply cannot afford to be paying the premiums to get drivers to deliver stuff the big impact it's going to have is on range so there will probably be products on the shelves but you will not have anywhere near the range of, of choices to choose from you know maybe only a couple of types of baked bean rather than uh, the the shelf that we're used to seeing with with hundreds of different brands or dozens of different brands on there and it's not just things that you know, we're, we're concerned about in terms of Christmas, like turkeys and chickens and toys being impacted. Actually, Besser Britain got a scoop last week. Thanks to Alexandre. We put it on our Twitter. Um, a leading research university has said to its staff, and we've, we've seen the, the leaked uh, email, internal email saying that gas bottles are in short supply, um, to hold CO2. Now, this is critically important as we understand it in terms of incubators within research labs, including those that uh, do COVID research work. 
And so uh, the missive had gone out to researchers saying, you know, please turn off all machinery that you're not currently using at the moment because we cannot guarantee that we are going to be able to supply CO2 into the labs as a direct consequence of all of these supply chain issues linked to Brexit. Every remainer in the country will be shouting, jumping up and down saying, I told you so, I told you so. This probably isn't something that's permeated through to the public consciousness just yet. But if anything will, it will be not having your turkey crown on the dining table on Christmas Day. I can just see the express letters now going, I thought we had too much CO2. Now the Ramonas are saying we haven't got enough. Letter of the week, Daily Express. Finally, the Association of Independent Meat Suppliers is asking to be allowed to use prisoners to replace workers lost to Brexit and COVID. Some producers already have inmates on temporary license programs working for them. As a vegan, I'm sure you're not all that bothered about the state of the meat trade, Naomi. But is, is this the Brexit people voted for? Well, um, you say as a vegan, but actually the the alternative is that these animals just get slaughtered Mm. and and, and ditched. So meat processing isn't about um, farm workers. It's about the places where the the birds get defeathered, processed, minced, whatever, you know, goes on. And as a vegan, obviously, you know, I, I would, of course, rather people weren't consuming meat. But if we are breeding those animals, then surely it's better for them to go into the food chain than to just be slaughtered for no benefit to anyone whatsoever. One Suffolk prison has said that it's already reached its quota in supplying prison workers. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it's staggering, basically, that that we've got to this stage where um, we just are such a, a unattractive destination for people to come and work here, B, that, you know, we make it so incredibly difficult for those that do, um, and C, that, you know, we didn't, we didn't have any kind of mitigation in place for this incredibly predictable scenario. Putting prisoners into the uh, meat industry. I don't think we're at Soylent Green levels just yet, but uh, I don't know, maybe it'll come. Um, Naomi, thanks for joining me and getting up early for Start Your Week. Thanks very much, Andrew. Sorry, it was a bit of a, a Debbie Downer one, but hey, that's Hey, we don't write right the now. news, we just talk about it. Listeners, thanks for listening. As you know, we have new dailies every Monday to Thursday and at the weekend too. If you liked this show or our, our past editions, why not forward them to three friends? We're asking people to spread the word for us. We'd love to hear the feedback from new listeners and from you as well. So um, if you're listening on your phone now, there is a share button right in front of you. Send it to some friends and see what they think. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh,